You're listening to High Vibe Mindset, where entrepreneurs Aaron Smith, a sports physician assistant, and Melissa Smith, an intuitive eating dietitian and mindset coach, dive into all the juicy details of business, relationships, health, science, and spirituality. Now let's dive in. Today, we sat down with Mark Hirschberg. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s and academia. He helped to start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he teaches annually. At MIT, he received a number of degrees. He received a Bachelor of Science in Physics, Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, and a Master's in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. At Harvard Business School, Mark helped to create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corals. And fun fact, he was one of the top ranked ballroom dancers in the country. So we're super excited to dive into this conversation today because he has a lot of insight on what it takes to be a leader what it takes to really launch your career. And if you are a new business owner or if you're trying to scale your business, you're going to get a lot of great insights on the skills that you should be focusing on and what true leadership looks like. We are thrilled to have you on and have this discussion on leadership and management in relation to new, seasoned, and aspiring business owners. Your background of nearly 20 years of teaching at MIT's Career Success Accelerator Program as well as working in several industries, has allowed you to form an expertise around successful career building. We want to zoom in on your insights and learnings on what quality leadership looks like, and then later on, zoom back out on the other key skills needed for career success, all of which you cover in both your book and your app, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Yeah, it's really good to have you on the show. I really want to dive into some leadership because you have quite a bit of experience in this area. In fact, I was looking over your book. It dives into a huge amount of information. We had a really hard time narrowing down what we actually wanted to talk about today. But after after we kind of discussed about, we wanted to talk a little bit about leadership because I think a lot of our audience, they're aspiring to be leaders, they're current leaders, and they're growing into their potential. I guess my first question is, what is your definition of leadership? Most people look at leadership positionally. They think leadership comes from having a title or a role. Now, your authority comes positionally. Your authority comes from having an executive title, from having a certain rank in the military. But true leadership is what we refer to as influential leadership. And the essence of leadership is having a vision, having some future state that you want to get to, and then inspiring other people to join with you in trying to achieve that state. More than anything else, that is leadership. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like for all of the coaches, course creators, podcasters, and people out there, when they have that strong why and they have that mission of the people that they want to serve, they are taking on that leadership in a way. They're influencing people for a particular cause. So I love that definition. When we think about some of the greatest leaders of the 20th century, people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King, they had no authority. 
right? But they had a vision for the future state. They weren't the only ones with that vision. Other people did, but they had the vision and they convinced other people to join them in trying to achieve it. That is what made them leaders. Speaking on the leader, are there specific qualities that a leader has? And can we further develop those uh, so we can have more of those same qualities in our own lives? There are a number of qualities, and this is debated within the leadership research community. When you think about the leaders you like and admire, so before I answer a question, think to yourself, you can pause the podcast and think, okay, who are the leaders I like? What do I like about them? What makes them a great leader? And this is a great exercise before I just hand you some answers. The, what you're probably going to come up with are things such as they're a good communicator. They're good at listening and incorporating feedback. They might be good at executing. They have integrity. They're responsible. They understand the challenge. It's easy to say, let's do this. But if you don't really know how to do it, it's hard to get people to follow along with you. So there's all these great qualities, and this is a starting list, right? We can come up with dozens of more, and all these qualities help to make someone a great leader. We're not always equally strong in each of these. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. As individuals, as we develop our leadership, we can focus on these individual attributes and become a better listener, become a better manager, become better at taking feedback, become get better at engaging other people or public speaking. So we can work on these individual components that will feed into our leadership capabilities. Awesome. Yeah, I think there's so much there and a lot of qualities you pointed out with communication and listening and taking in feedback, being able to execute, right? Not just talk about your ideas, but actually create a plan, be able to see that vision and break it down into the steps and be able to execute it. And I think a lot of people struggle with that or they just get stuck on the really big picture visions and it can feel overwhelming and they don't know how to break things down. They don't know how to do it to the day to day level. So I know you talk about that in your book and you share ways that people can practice leadership every day. So can you give us some of those tips? One of the common misconceptions is that leadership is this magical thing that happens when you reach a certain level. So I want you to think for a moment. I'm not going to, well, you'll probably get the answer just as you think about it, but I want to spell it out. Come up with a list of what are the qualities in a leader. If you didn't do it before, come up with an additional list. And now come up with a list, pause it again, and come up with a list of the qualities that you want in a follower. If you were leading a team and you had to pick people for your project, come up with a list of qualities that you want in the people joining your team. When you reflect on these lists, I don't want to give you the punchline. When you reflect on these lists, you're suddenly going to get an insight and you can develop your skills as a follower, even if you're not in that leadership position. And what you're going to discover is this is going to help propel you to be a leader. I saw some the other day that I don't know what term you would use for this, but like maybe high functioning or, or, or high level people, they were kind of saying that high level people, high functioning people, these these leaders that we look up to, a lot of them are very emotionally stable. Like they they don't react emotionally. They kind of take criticism and instead of getting upset about it or arguing with the person or defending, you know, what they've done, they kind of take that feedback and and turn around and start implementing change if, if necessary. How important do you think that is? I know there's a bunch of different qualities, but how important is that one itself? 
I want to distinguish between being an emotional person and responding emotionally, because some people would argue it's important to be emotional, to connect with people on an emotional level. That's especially how we inspire people for big change. When you look again at the examples I gave of Gandhi or Martin Luther King, yes, there were logical arguments about equality, but really when you listen to their speeches, when they got people who were allies, they appealed to them on an emotional level about equality, right? And an emotional level about why this is the right thing to do about justice. So good leaders often can tap into that emotional side, but to the point you raise, we need to learn when to use our emotions and when not to. This is almost out of Star Wars, right? What Yoda teach Luke Skywalker, don't let your emotions overtake you, right? You can't get too emotional. That leads to the dark side. And so as a leader, we need to recognize there's going to be criticism. There's going to be setbacks. And it's important to pay attention to it. The criticism may have some validation to it, right? There might be some uh, important points inside that criticism of you. Maybe not all of it. Now, all of us, when we get criticized, we get defensive. We say, oh, you know, you're, no, I'm, I'm right. You're wrong. You're attacking me. And we have to take our emotions out of it because we feel that way. And we say, okay, yeah, oh, yep, you're attacking me. I get, but let me rationally think about what you're saying. You know, you may have a point here. And then the leader can adapt and change and improve by taking the emotions out of it and not putting up that emotional defense. So it's okay to be emotional, but it's important to recognize when you're being emotional and if you can pull your emotions out of it. That's great. I love that. It makes me think too, with emotional regulation, it can be so helpful for people to ask for some time, right? To process. And it's kind of tough in our, our current state where people want that immediate answer. But I think that's a way that people can work through that is say, I'm going to give you the answer. Let me <laughs> process this. Because a lot of times we do see those defensive responses if people are getting that critical feedback, or maybe they do take the time off, but they just completely go missing and they don't say anything. So I think even with that, that helps a lot to think about how we can approach things with our communication as leaders and how we can approach our followers and our audience and communicate appropriately and let them know where we're at and, and what we plan to do. And whether you're in a leadership role or even just, let's say, in your job and you know you're about to get a feedback session, say your annual review, one thing I would do is I'd say, okay, I know you're going to give me feedback, good and bad. What I'm going to do, I know I get defensive about this. I know inside I hear this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all your feedback. I'm not going to respond today because I will have a natural emotional reaction and do exactly what you said. I'm going to process it overnight. When my emotions die down, I can think about it more rationally. And then I'd like to come back and sit with you tomorrow and discuss it more fully when I'm in a better state of mind and had a chance to think through it. And if you say this ahead of time, you set that expectation of, okay, we're going to have a two-part meeting and I get why you're not responding now to your point. People expect you're going to respond on the spot. And many people understand this. When I've said this to people, I've heard, oh, you know what? I'm the same way. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think most people will be understanding of the approach you bring up. So I had another question kind of based off of this. What is the biggest block that keep people from becoming great leaders?
Are you looking to elevate your client experience to the next level? Whether you're in the wellness, photography, or mental health worlds, imagine the impact of offering your client a truly unique and memorable gift that supports them on a personal level. Introducing the Custom Affirmation Card Decks by Soleya. Our custom affirmation decks are designed to empower and inspire your clients, leaving a lasting impression that strengthens your professional relationship. So picture this. Your own branded affirmation cards beautifully crafted with imagery that reflects your brand's essence. These card decks serve as more than just a gift. They become a daily reminder of your commitment to your client's well-being and success. Whether you're a life coach, yoga instructor, therapist, or photographer, your custom card deck supports your client's personal growth even when they're not in a session with you. So why settle for generic gifts like candles or pens? when you can create something truly transformational and beautiful. With Soleil's custom affirmation cards, you can tailor every aspect to align with your brand identity and the values that you stand for. And this process is easy for you. We do all the heavy lifting from design to ordering. Simply choose your affirmations, select the imagery, and add your logo and branding elements. We'll take care of the rest, delivering a high-quality, personalized product. Join the ranks of leading wellness, photography, and mental health professionals who are elevating their client experience with custom affirmation card decks from Soleya. Visit our website today at soleya.co slash custom to learn more and start creating your own unforgettable client gifts. That's soleya.co slash custom. And I'll spell it out for you. S-O-U-L-E-A dot C-O forward slash C-U- S-T-O-M. Together, let's inspire positivity and empower transformation one affirmation at a time. I don't know if there's one element, but I will I'll name a couple common failure modes. One is the hero mode. It's the I've been doing it myself. I've been carrying the burden. And we see this especially as people move into their first leadership role as they go from being an individual contributor. Because as you've been successful as an individual contributor, you've taken on more and more responsibility. You know more, you're more capable. And so you kind of led from this individual contributor side, maybe led the ideas. And when things got tough, well, you could just double down. You could think more, plan more, work more. But as you hit that next level, you can't do it all yourself. And the skills that actually made you successful as an individual contributor are going to limit you as a leader. So you have to shift that mindset to, it can't just be all on me. And now I have to learn more about delegation of responsibility, delegation of authority, delegation of engagement. And by the way, when you, when you delegate responsibility, you can delegate authority as much as you want. You can delegate responsibility as well, but it's, Not that your responsibility diminishes, it just means others have increased. Uh, And that's a a common misunderstanding as well. If I say, okay, you're my deputies. By the way, you guys take this on. Oh, it didn't work? Well, not my fault. No, it is because that responsibility is given to me. I can share some of it with you, but it doesn't remove it from me because this was on me to get done. I chose to engage you. It could also just be a shortfall in some of these other skills that we've talked about. If you are a bad communicator, you can't get people engaged. If you don't have the domain knowledge, you might come up short. So really any of these shortfalls, but will vary depending on the particular 
environment. It makes me think leadership and us being in business, we're learning so much. And I love how even in your book, it says essential skills for success that no one taught you. And a big one for me would be communication. Like that's something I had to learn through therapy and understanding emotional regulation, because it's true. Like a lot of us will just naturally be defensive and we won't have great communication. And that's not something that we learn in school and learn growing up. And with learning how to delegate, maybe if you get an MBA, you'll get some of that management experience and kind of get some of those tips to learn how to delegate. But for me, I can see communication being a a big area that can really make or break you and that we don't learn growing up. So I love that you cover that and you give some of those practical tips. All the skills in the book actually come from what corporate America has told us they want but can't find. So they've Mm -hmm. given feedback via surveys to MIT and to other universities saying we want people who are strong communicators good leaders, good teammates, good negotiations, strong networks, understand the work environment, have good ethical grounding. But we just can't find people with these skills, not just out of college, but in general, because as you point out, they're not being taught, not in high school, not at universities, not in corporate training even. And so it's a real shortcoming in our labor force. Interesting you you mentioned that. So out of out of all the students you've you've taught at MIT, you know, MIT renowned for having highly intelligent people, there were lots of potential coming through. Did you see any trends that you weren't expecting? Like you expected people to be good and maybe right and, and, and they were terrible or were there any big trends that you see, especially like in our generation now coming through where we have failed to learn certain things? I wouldn't say there's inherently a, a trend failure. There are some systemic things that I've seen. And what stands out most, I'd say two things. First, for any younger listeners to the podcast, right now, a lot of college seniors are very concerned about finding a job. It's certainly a challenging time. And I've seen this time again, this is my third recession as an adult. I've seen even more from remember when I was younger. What would happen is people would say, okay, this is, this is a bad time period. So for example, right after a dot-com crash, Everyone was interested in getting into software. And then 2000, we had the dot-com crash. And the number of people who are majoring in computer science suddenly dropped. And I said, well, you know, the party's over, no more jobs. I'm going to pick something else. Now, it's not that their preferences suddenly shifted. It's not that all of a sudden the people born in this one year were less likely to get into computer science, but they thought the job prospects had dimmed. And these are sophomores picking their major. Now, two years later, the job market had started to improve when these sophomores became seniors and graduated. And certainly three, four years out, it was very good. And then beyond that, it's been fantastic. Unfortunately, too many college students make a short-term decision. They make a decision for an industry, for a major, for a type of job within the industry based on what is currently available. And certainly, you do have to balance this. You do have to recognize I might have student loans. I might have family obligations. I do need to find something that can pay. I can't wait six, 12 months to find a job or I need a job that pays well today. But you have to recognize it's putting you on a path that's going to last you 40, 50 years. So don't just think in the short term. Take a longer term view. And unfortunately, we don't train our students to think this way. Yeah, I'd say another 
unfortunate trend we have is we don't teach people, to your point about communication, we don't teach people basic life skills. And so what I mean by life skills, these are things such as even how to debate or disagree or argue. Now what everyone looks for is they want that mic drop comment. Oh, I got the last zinger in, therefore I win, right? And we want to see this in the politicians, right? Who really nailed them at the debate? Well, mm. running a country is not about nailing someone at a debate. Running a company is about slow, meticulous, deliberate decision-making. That's not super exciting, right? But we haven't trained people to do this. We used to when you did a formal Lincoln-Douglas debate. You had back and forth and look at the points, and that's what we're scoring on, not on zingers. Even skills such as relationship building. This is something, this is a non-professional skill. We have so many marriages ending in failure. And I meet so many people, and they talk about, oh, we're in love, and this is great. Well, have you talked about when you're going to have kids? No. Have you talked about what you're going to spend your money on, how much is going to be saved, how much will be spent? How do you envision using the money? Where you want to live? Where you want to retire? No, we don't talk about any of this. And then they discover misalignments. And it's because we're not teaching these types of relationships. We used to learn it from our parents, but these days our parents are distracted. They might have multiple jobs. We might not even see our parents do it because they're divorced. They're engaged with other activities. We're not teaching this in school. So there's a whole bunch of skills that we used to get growing up including things like networking, including how we relate to each other, all these skills we're just not teaching. And these are important functional skills. Financial literacy is another one. And I think we need to bring this back into our curriculum back in the schools. So there's no trend lines, but there are systemic holes in our education. I, I completely agree with that too. And it's nice because some of these are thoughts I've had for a while. And <laughs> it's, it's nice to hear you kind of like soundboard off of them. So I'm I, Maybe I'm thinking in the right direction. We, we joke like, oh, they should teach us how to do taxes in school. But I think it's a lot more than that. I think we're missing out a whole lot talking about relationships. When do you do marriage counseling? Well, it's after you're already engaged, you're already pretty committed to that person. And then you start having these big questions like kids, finances, budget, where are we going to live? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, like this, this is not like we didn't have the same picture in mind. and. Uh, it's very interesting. I've been seeing too with all these personality tests and self-development that a lot of people don't have the self-awareness of their own values, but it comes up, right? So it, you're going to live out your high priority values, whether you know how to recognize it or not or communicate it or not. And other people have their values. So it's important to have self-awareness of what are my top values. It's important to know who you get in a relationship with, what are their top values. And if there's a massive misalignment or an alignment, but we're not taught that. We're not taught like what are our core values and what does that look like? And how do I know what mine are? And how do I know what another person's is? So that's a whole other thing too. But when we're thinking about continuing the conversation with leadership, right? And being able to become a great leader. And there's so much we talked about with um, the qualities of a leader and thinking about the communication and how we can become a better leader. We also want to think about, you know, the differences with leadership and management and what are some of the core elements that go into management and some other core elements that go into when you're a leader and you're creating a team. This is a common question of people first exploring leadership. 
what's the difference between leadership and management? And before I answer it, I'm going to just remind you, good leaders manage, good managers lead. In the real world, there's not that much of a distinction in your day-to-day activities. You will probably be most effective doing some of each. But it's still an important question to ask because we want to break down what really is the management piece versus the leadership piece. When you think about playing basketball, there is shooting, there is passing, there is court awareness, where are your teammates? These are all individual components. But of course, when you're playing the game, it's all kind of fluid. You don't say, okay, stop dribbling and now start shooting. One just flows into the other. But still, you practice the drills, you practice individually in a wax on, wax off fashion. So we can do the same with leadership versus management. And really, the difference comes down to, there's different ways to express it, but I would say leadership is big picture. It's determining that direction and inspiring to get there and getting people to come along in that process, whereas management is about the execution of it. Now, of course, when someone says, let's go to Mars, and we certainly have people saying that, you're not going to follow that person if you don't think she's capable of getting the team there. She can say, wouldn't it be great to go to Mars? And you say, yeah, but you know nothing about rocket science or life sciences or anything else you need to get there, even how to finance a product. So it's a wonderful dream, but we're not going to follow you. On the other hand, someone who's great, who says, I know how to build these systems, put the people together, get the financing, but they're not inspiring. They don't know how to go out and get people to come on board for this project they're missing that leading piece. So you can think of leadership and management as that kind of big picture and then the execution, but again, a good leader manages and a good manager leads. Awesome, that, that's a great explanation for us to see how that works together and the differences, the key differences. You mentioned that having the right answer isn't always necessary. Could you expound upon that a little bit? Why having the right answer isn't always necessary? As the manager, you don't have to know the right answer. And this is an important and subtle distinction. When we look at the history of management, it first comes from the military. Back in the 17th, 18th century, those were the biggest organizations we had were the military. And the military, there's a very clear hierarchy. The commanding officer tells you what to do, and you just assume it's right, and you follow through, and you don't question it. We took this concept, we moved it into the factory, When we had the Industrial Revolution, that's when we started to get large organizations outside the military. We started to have companies. How did that work? We had a factory floor and you had the supervisors or managers. So all of you were turning screws or hammering things. And as a manager, I'd look and say, good job turning that screw. You hammer harder, right? And my job was to tell you what you should be doing because I know better. Mine was to know, yours was to do. But now we look at modern teams and systems. It's no longer that I know everything more than you do. Our systems are complicated. This could be because we are very senior in our roles. So I'm a CTO. I started my career as a software developer. I knew all about the software that I used. Now we're using languages. Well, I've never written code in those languages. I've written other languages. I know the concepts, but there might be some gotchas and some pitfalls and some things in this particular technology that I personally don't really pay attention to because I'm at a much higher level focusing on bigger picture ideas. I am relying on my team to say, 
wait a second, Mark, here's the challenge we have using this technology in this way. So I'm relying on them to know things I don't know. We also have cross-functional teams. We get people coming in, bringing the sales perspective, the marketing perspective. I got my product managers, data science people, all these people who are experts in different areas coming together. And if I felt my job was, well, I have to know everything you know and more, I'm gonna spend all this time trying to outsmart everyone on my team. I'm not gonna have time to do anything else. I'm frankly not gonna outsmart them all. Instead, I recognize that as the manager, my job isn't to always have the answer. My job is to say, wow, that's a really good question. Okay, let's figure out how do we get the answer? And that involves these three people over here, maybe involves getting information from outside the team to find it. And it's a common mistake of beginning managers to think, I have to know more than everyone else. I always have to be right. I always have to have the answer. But when it comes to management, your job is to get the answer not to have the answer. Awesome. That is a great explanation. And it makes me think of the way things are heading nowadays too with entrepreneurs and how they're very eager to hire a business coach when they're first starting off. And I don't know if that's how it was in the past, if so many entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs would hire a business coach um, for the ones that didn't get an MBA or something. But it's very helpful to go and get that guidance and go to someone who's done it before to point you in the right direction. And it helps you know what you don't know. Because I think even with starting a business and, you know, you have a concept and maybe you're not even sure that you need a marketing person or a finance person or an account, you know, all these different areas that (laughs) come together for a business and working with someone that can help you get that plan in place. So there's no excuse, right? So it's like, if you want to be a leader and you want to be a business owner and you don't know where to start, you can always hire the person who can help you and share with you, okay, this is how you start and remind you, you don't need to know all, all the answers. You can hire as you go. And all of us have these areas of improvement before us. I have generated hundreds of millions of dollars in value in the companies that I've helped grow. When it came time to write this book, first thing I did is I went to a friend of mine who is a, a successful author. And yeah, I've done all this great business work, all this value generation. I know about marketing. I know about sales. I've never done books before. I said to her, what do I need to know about books? And I read a whole bunch of articles and blogs because I still didn't know enough after talking to her. And even though I know all this stuff about books now and about these other areas, still, I know I can still improve. I wrote the book on leadership, on negotiations, and yet I can still learn more. I don't know everything about it. All of us need to recognize we can improve. There's still things we don't know. And when that becomes necessary and important for the growth of ourselves or our business, there's no shame in seeking out help. That's how we all got to where we are and how we'll get to where we're going. So I find it interesting in your book, you mentioned that that corporate politics cannot be ignored. Why is that? And how should we address that? As me, technically, I've, I've always tried to stay out of it. Eventually... I've come to a conclusion, you always have to take a stance somewhere, unfortunately. But in your experience, how do we address corporate politics? It always reminds me of the people who are anti-science. I say, well, I don't believe that the earth goes around the sun, or I don't believe this certain thing is true. But you don't have to believe it. This is the reality. This is how nature works. When we think about government politics, 
right? You could say, well, I don't believe in it. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to vote. Okay, fine. But someone's getting into office and those people are going to make policies and laws and that's going to impact your life, whether you chose to engage or not. You can't hide from it. You can't say, nope, this doesn't apply to me. Corporate politics is the same way. People are engaging in this. People are making decisions. It's impacting the environment in which you work, possibly you directly, and whether or not you choose to engage, it's going to impact you. So you are better off being proactive, learning to engage and learning how to be effective to lead to the outcomes that you want. That makes so much sense. And I think it applies to so many areas because I feel like it's a cop out when people say, oh, I don't like drama or I don't like corporate politics. And it, they kind of want to just not think about it, not talk about it. But you're right, it exists. So it's much more effective for us to recognize that it exists and then learn how to work within that and do better and and learn how to manage that. I think that's a really strong point to not just ignore it. It can't be ignored <laughs> and learn how to deal with it. Going back to, I guess, self-development and our, our particular audience, I find it interesting that a lot of people who start researching, you know, self-improvement or self-development, they come across a lot of these common principles that we've already mentioned. They're, they're not taught in the schools and many of us aren't being taught them deeply by our parents either. Like, I think there's been a, a large gap in our education. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we used to be taught this and now a lot of it's dropping off? Some of it we weren't taught and some were, we were, but now we aren't. So let's talk about each of them. The what we were, but we aren't. If you think about what family life was like 100, 200 years ago, we did our work in the fields or the shops. And then what you do? You sat at home and it was a small community. You could see everything going on. You weren't distracted by the latest show on Netflix, plus all the video games, plus the viral videos, plus everything else that was just pulling away attention. So you focused on daily life and interactions of other people. It was a lot easier. There's a lot less to worry about. So I think we would be exposed to more of it through our families and through our daily social life. Now, when we get to what hasn't been taught in school, when you think about the history of education, so in the U.S., primary and secondary education came about roughly, really kind of matured in the 19th century and the early 20th century, where school became truly compulsory. And the goal was just to teach us the basic skills to be effective adults. So the reading, writing, arithmetic. We've added a little more. We've had some social studies, may learn a foreign language, but it's just to make you functional within society. So you can go, you can calculate the tip at the restaurant hopefully filed your taxes, communicate in a literate manner. That's all they were trying to achieve there. When you go on to additional education, vocational education or university, they're really doing the same thing. Vocational education, what are they doing? We're teaching you how to repair an air conditioner. The university actually really isn't that different. When you say, well, I'm going to learn accounting, what they're doing is they're saying you're going into the accounting department, which is run by accountants, with PhDs, and all they're saying is, if you take so many classes, so many hours of learning, we will credential you with a degree saying, you know a certain level of accounting. That's it. They don't care about whether you took that calculus plus the Shakespeare plus the other stuff. The college threw that in to try and pretend 
We're not just vocational. But whether you had all that or not, when you get this accounting degree or chemistry or marketing or whatever, they're saying you are this level of knowledge within this discipline. We're not saying you're an effective accountant. We're not saying you're a good employee. We're not saying you understand how the world works. We're just saying you know this much information about accounting. The colleges are just there to credentialize the amount of knowledge you have learned within a discipline, but it is a proxy, and at times a poor one, for how capable we will be in our roles. And going into the 21st century, it was designed this way for historical reasons based on how the university system first came about roughly eight centuries ago. Going forward, particularly post-COVID, as colleges really need to demonstrate their value, they need to shift into saying, we are going to teach you career preparedness. Now, some of that will still be learning chemistry or accounting or whatever your field is, but we have to provide you more skills to make you more effective and capable in the world. I think we're going to see a shift over the next roughly 20 to 50 years as universities do teach you more practical skills. So real quickly, back to your book. I know you have a lot of information in there. And if you're listening, please go check out this book. I mean, we can only barely scratch the surface on this podcast. There's so much more good information out there. But for our listeners who haven't heard about the book or haven't un- until this episode, can you give us like a brief, I know it's hard because it covers so much. Can you give us like a summary and who you would recommend it for? The book itself, as I mentioned earlier, comes from what corporate America is telling us they want to see in people. We've gotten feedback at MIT, similar feedback at other universities. And these are the skills they want, but they're having trouble finding. So what are these skills? In the book, I break it down to three sections, 10 chapters. First section, career, how to create a career plan, figuring out where you want to go, and then what's the plan to execute on to get there. Second chapter, how to be effective in your job, managing your manager, understanding corporate politics, understanding the value you add in your company and how to deliver more value. Third chapter, interviewing. Now there's lots of information on how to be a candidate, but we never train people how to be a hiring manager. And most of us are gonna be on the other side of the table, but we've never taught them how do you actually effectively interview and hire others. The second section, leadership and management. And we break down management into both people management and process management, because both parts are important. The third section, fundamental skills, such as communication, networking, negotiation, and ethics. And this book, it's helpful for people coming out of college. It's helpful for people early in their careers. It's helpful for people later in their careers. I meet so many people in their 40s and 50s who say, I wish I knew more about networking or negotiating or communication because no one's taught me. It's also helpful, even if you say, I know all this, when you want your team to get better, there's a free download on the website, how you can train up your team using a tool like this. And so here's the secret. It's how we teach at MIT. It's how business schools have taught for years. You want to create peer learning groups. Because when we're learning, say accounting, all they're doing is saying, here are the accounting rules. This is the rule. Here's how to apply it. Memorize it. Done. But when it comes to communication or leadership, there's no simple do this rule and you are a leader. There's lots of different ways to do it. And what's really powerful is we sit around and say, well, here's a situation. Okay, here's how I would lead through this or communicate through this. How would you do it? And then you give me your perspective. Then we hear your perspective. We go, wow, I never would have thought of it that way. And you get these different perspectives. 
So the best way to learn is you want to create this peer learning group. And the download explains how you can do it at your organization, how you can create a local meetup group or other type of group to do it. And now, yes, you can use my book and I break down, here's how you can divide up the book and have different sections on it. But I don't want us to seem like he's just trying to push books to more people. You can use any of the other books I recommend, any other books out there on leadership or these other topics that you like. You can use great podcasts like this one. And you listen to this podcast with a group of people, and then you discuss it with your peers so you get more out of that podcast. So create this peer learning group and then use my book or the podcast or anything else to really feed that content in, but stimulate that discussion. Thank you so much. Everyone should go check out his book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. And thank you so much for all the value that you provided. So many amazing insights that are really going to help our listeners and also helped me and made things click. And thank you so much for being on our show. Do you have any other closing remarks or anything maybe that you wanted to talk that we didn't hit on? I would point out with all these skills, it is not about being the best leader, the best negotiator, the best networker. It's not about being the best in the world. If you just get slightly better, marginally better, 2% better, very achievable, you start getting a massive return. And if everyone in your organization was 2% better at communicating or leading, you're going to be so much more effective. So don't feel daunted by this. Don't think, oh, I'm, I'm not good at it and there's so far to go. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about small improvements from where you are, and it will have a massive effect on your success and that of your organization. Yes, thank you so much. That is a great tip. Everyone, please take that. If nothing else, know that you can get better. So do that practice each day and learn. Like he said, pick up this book, learn from podcasts and learn from your peers. I love that as well. Being able to learn from other people who are wanting to do similar things and talk to them and see what they're doing. But thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you loved this episode, subscribe and stay notified for new episodes every Tuesday. Leave us a review with what you liked or what you want more of. And don't forget, stay high vibe. Do you know these three things are sabotaging your ability to live your high vibe life? First is living in disconnection, which basically means walking around with no awareness of your body, emotions, or values. And second is letting negative self-talk run the show in your brain. That's just going to make you doubt your potential and stop you from going after your dreams. Finally, it's not having any supportive coping practices or self-care that doesn't take hours or cost tons of money. Because when you're living in chronic stress at home or work, the last thing that feels accessible is a spa day or a meditation retreat. We have personally struggled with all of these things, and that's why we created the Body Deck. This affirmation card deck has 77 intentionally designed beautiful cards to help you address all three of these high vibe killers in just a couple minutes a day. These affirmations will help you tune into your body and your inner world, practice positive self-talk, and best of all, it's super portable and affordable.
For only $33, benefit from the transformative practice of affirmations anywhere you go. So if you're ready to stop the self-sabotage and start being the highest version of yourself, you'll definitely want to get your hands on the Body Deck Affirmation Cards. Head over to solea.co. That's S-O-U-L-E-A dot C-O to get the Body Deck Affirmation Cards today. You can also find the link in the show notes.